Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier, the E-edition. And you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. My name is Peter Welch, and I am narrating your paper here today. So, let's take a look here. I hope all of you had a nice Christmas holiday, and uh, looking forward to a brand new year. Just a few more days, folks. Where'd the time go? Boy, oh boy. Okay, let's take a look now at the year in review. That is uh, top 10 Iowa stories of 2023. As 2023 draws to a close, the Courier looks back at some of the biggest and most controversial news stories of 2023. After a contentious legislative session and on the eve of the 2024 Iowa caucuses, it's no surprise that politics dominates this year's list. The choices are presented in chronological order, with no pretense of rating them by importance. Number one, in January, surrounded by school choice advocates and private school students, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a huge private school assistance bill, the culmination of a three-year effort and a victory on one of the governor's top legislative priorities. The program will provide $7,600 education savings accounts for tuition and expenses at private schools, eventually open to all students regardless of income. It will cost an estimated $345 million annually by 2027. Number two, in March, Republican state lawmakers passed a slate of anti-LGBTQ bills, including a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Lawmakers also passed a law requiring students, employees, parents, and visitors to use restrooms, changing rooms, and other related facilities according to their biological sex, as listed on a person's official birth uh, certificate. Thousands of Iowans publicly protested. Students uh, at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes and hundreds attended rallies at the Iowa Capitol. Democratic uh, lawmakers and teachers, LGBTQ organizers and students said that the bills contradict notions of freedom and liberty. Number three, in May, Reynolds signed a slate of education bills into law including a bill limiting, limiting LGBTQ instruction in topics through sixth grade and barring books with uh, sexual content from school libraries. The law bars discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through sixth grade, bans books depicting sex acts from school libraries, and requires schools to notify parents if a student requests a change in their name or pronouns. Number four, on May 28th, structural issues led to the partial collapse of an apartment building in Davenport, killing three people. At that time of the collapse, there were 53 residents registered as living in the 80-unit building. Search and rescue efforts continued for nearly a week at the six-story apartment building constructed in 2015 through 2016. It was eventually demolished, but left behind a slew of lawsuits. Most still are unresolved. All right, now we're going to 
turn the page here to continue our reading of this article. Bear with me for a second as we get there. Okay, here we go. Number five. In July, Reynolds signed into law a near-total ban on abortions in Iowa, passed three days earlier by a special session of the Iowa legislature. Days later, a Polk County District Court judge temporarily blocked enforcement of the new law. Iowa Attorney General Brina Byrd in November filed the state's legal argument to the Iowa Supreme Court seeking to uphold a law that would ban most abortions after six weeks. Justices plan to hear the appeal. Number six. In October, Navigator CO2, one of the carbon dioxide pipeline companies seeking to build in Iowa, announced it was canceling its proposal because of unpredictable regulatory environment in Iowa and South Dakota. The pipeline projects are meant to capture lucrative federal tax credits for sequestering carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that is primary driver of climate change. Ethanol plants would benefit from the tax credits and from producing low-carbon fuels that can be sold in stricter markets. Number seven, in November, candidates who supported restrictions on school materials and classroom discussions about gender and transgender students were roundly defeated in school board elections across Iowa. School board elections in the Mason City Lynn uh, Lynn, Marr, Ankeny, and Johnson in school districts, just to name a few, went almost exclusively for candidates who were supported by the teachers' union and who opposed book policy and transgender student policies. Almost exclusively, candidates who were endorsed by conservative groups, including the self-described parents' rights advocacy group Moms for Liberty, failed. And number eight... In November, Reynolds officially endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his quest for the Republican presidential nomination, calling him one of the most effective leaders I've ever seen. Reynolds originally said that she would remain neutral in the run-up to the caucuses, but over the summer began to suggest that she might endorse after all. Typically, Iowa's governors have stayed neutral. Number nine. Throughout 2023, former President Donald Trump dominated the contest for Iowa's delegates to the 2024 Republican National Convention. Trump currently leads his Republican rivals by more than 30 percentage points, according to a real clear politics average of Iowa polls. Many political experts predicted that the anti-Trump GOP vote would consolidate as the Iowa caucuses draw nearer. Instead, Trump's advantage has only grown. Number 10, in December, a satanic temple display inside the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines was destroyed. And a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot who was recently defeated in a state house election in Mississippi was accused of causing the damage. A Facebook posting by the Satanic Temple said that the display, known as a Mahomet statue, was destroyed beyond repair. The display is permitted by rules that govern religious ins- installations inside the Capitol, but drew criticism from many conservatives, including presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. 
But others, including State Representative John Dunwell, Republican Newton, who also is a minister, warned against allowing a vocal critics to silence a minority for thinking or believing difficult, uh, differently than the majority. So that was the, um, the 10 major stories in our state here for 2023 as we are looking back there. All right, let's um, go back to the action, go back to the first page here and read on from there. Eastern Iowa Hospitals revealed 2023 most popular baby names. The entertainment industry seems to be driving baby name trends nationwide, but the perennial favorites are holding their own in eastern Iowa. Harper ranks as the most popular girl's name for 2023 at Unity Point Health Hospitals in eastern Iowa, and Maverick was the top pick for boys, the medical system's uh, Carson Teagues said in a news release. Nationally, Olivia, Emma, and Amelia were the top girls' names for the third consecutive year. Babycenter.com reports uh, an online media, which is an online media company, that it's part of everyday health group uh, pregnancy and parenting, said Noah, uh, Liam, uh, or Liam, and Oliver ranked as the top boys' names, with Noah taking over the top spot this year. All right, and I'm just looking here very briefly here. It says that uh, there should be some afternoon snow uh, today. Will be a high of 35 and a low of 27. All right, let's go to the second page here now and see what we have here going on here. Cedar Falls man arrested for false reports. A Cedar Falls sex offender has been arrested for allegedly phony and false calls to 911. Cedar Falls Police arrested Jameson Hubert, age 26, of 1702 Main Street on December 18th for three counts of misdemeanor making a false report. He was also detained on a parole violation. Dispatchers in Black Hawk and Butler Counties received several reports December 2nd and 3rd that someone was pointing a firearm at uh, Hubert and at a female acquaintance of his. The reports turned out to be fake, and investigators later searched Holbert's phone and determined that he had placed the calls according to uh, court records. Holbert is also awaiting trial for allegedly assaulting a female acquaintance on the 4th of December in Cedar Falls. Suspect faces new charges in Waterloo. A Waterloo man charged in a December 10th robbery that sent one person to the hospital with a gunshot wound, is facing new charges. Authorities allege that Marquane Christopher Smith stole $6,679 worth of music studio equipment in October. The equipment was removed from a commercial building at 2831 Falls Avenue. Court records indicate that the items belong to Tyquovios Davis. Smith, age 29, was arrested for second-degree theft December 15th in connection with the incident. He's also awaiting trial for first-degree robbery, burglary, willful injury, and felon in possession of a firearm in a December 10th incident where he and others attacked Richard Sturdivant, 
on Glenwood Street. Sturdivant was shot several times in the attack. Man accused of sex with teen in Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly having sexual contact with a teen. Black Hawk County Sheriff's deputies arrested uh, Havand uh, Shokar uh, Burkert at uh, age, age 21 of 327 East Mullen Avenue for two counts of third-degree sexual abuse under the, on the, the 15th of December. Bond was set at $25,000. And let's see. Nebraska man is arrested in Chase Crash at Casino in Waterloo. A Nebraska man's been arrested for allegedly ramming an occupied squad car during a brief pursuit on the night of December 18th. Brian Joseph Melbar, age 32, of Hastings, was arrested Friday after he was discharged from the hospital where he was treated for injuries during the chase. He was charged with assault on an officer with a vehicle, eluding interference and reckless driving. Bond was set at $5,300. All right, let's see what else we have here going on in the paper. Man facing federal drug charges in cash seizure. In Waterloo, authorities are pursuing federal drug charges for a Waterloo man who was found with marijuana and more than $59,000 in cash during a traffic stop. Last week, an investigator with the Tri-County Drug Enforcement Task Force filed a complaint charging Genovi uh, uh, Butler, age 42, with possession with intent to distribute a controlled substance. According to court records, officers found Butler carrying $1,900 in cash and 12 grams of marijuana during a traffic stop at Clay and Dane Streets on May 9th. And a man has, was arrested in a Mandalay Mansion break-in in Cedar Falls. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly stealing items from the historic Mandalay Mansion in Cedar Falls. Cedar Falls Police arrested Brian Donald Picken, age 54, of 125th Palmer Drive on December 15th on account of third-degree burglary. He was also arrested for allegedly breaking into a Waterloo home. According to court records, Picken had prior working relationships with Mandalay's owner, Alan Braze. In September of 2021, items were reported missing from the historic building at 1603 Park Drive. The stolen items later turned up at area pawn shops, and an investigation led to uh, picking according to court records. All right, let's see what else we've got here. Uh, one dead in crash near airport, pickup rear ended by speeder at intersection. A Waterloo man is dead following a collision Friday evening. According to the accident, report Joe, uh, Jason Joe Williams, age 43, was driving a Mercury passenger car east on Airline Highway when his vehicle rear-ended a Dodge pickup truck driven by Wade Eric Rasmussen, age 31, of Waterloo, around 6 p.m. The Mercury was traveling at about 70 miles per hour, witnesses told police, and the Dodge was beginning to cross Airport Boulevard after stopping at the stop sign. Williams was trapped in the vehicle, and he was freed by the crew with Waterloo Fire Rescue. He was taken to the Unity Point Health 
uh, Allen Hospital, where he was later pronounced dead, according to the accident report. Rasmussen was also taken to Allen Hospital for minor injuries. This was the second fatal crash in Waterloo in less than a week. On the night of December 20th, a pedestrian was struck on U.S. Highway 218 near Hawthorne Avenue and later died at the hospital. Details were not available. All right, let us continue to turn the page here and see what else we've got here. Um, all right, we've got something called The Thrill of the New. Hearst showcases recent acquisitions in its latest uh, exhibit in Cedar Falls. With a busy gallery season with ever-changing ex exhibitions, opportunities can be few and far between to show and celebrate new artworks added to the Hearst Center for the Arts Permanent Collection. Now seemed like the right time to pull some of those new pieces out of storage, textiles, paintings, prints, sculptures, and place them in the main gallery for the public to enjoy. Recent acquisitions from the Hearst Permanent Collection is on extent uh, is on exhibit. Excuse me, is on exhibit now through January 28th. It's been a while since we've had a show like this," said Emily Drennan, a curator and registrar. Some of the work had to be framed, and that takes time and money. So it takes time to organize an exhibit like this one. Newly acquired works represent such artists as Nina DeCreft Ward, John Page, Dwayne Slick, Ruth Hardinger, Hardinger, and Dean Schwartz, as well as Philip Chen, Ted uh, Carrara, Travis uh, Gingrich, K.C. Franks, and there are a lot of other names here. I can't, I can't read them all because of time. Uh, Drennan is responsible for managing the Hearst Permanent Art Collection, including cataloging each new acquisition given as a gift or purchased by the center and maintaining the collection as well as preparing and installing artwork for exhibitions. The center is part of the City of Cedar Falls Community Development uh, Department with additional support from the city's Arts and Culture Board, Public Art Committee, and Friends of the Hearst of the Hearst. Whether artwork is also, or what, excuse me, I should say whether artwork is acquired by donation from a benefactor or purchased by the center, each acquisition must be approved for addition to the center's collection. All right, here we go. We're now in the Cedar Valley section of the paper. Burger Chef's success going to his big head. Waterloo Man's Dream Business gets attention in National Magazine in Waterloo. David Bryant's latest accomplishment came as a nice surprise. While surfing the Internet a few weeks ago, the owner of Big Head Burger in Waterloo came across a story in Taste of Home magazine listing the best burger in every state. I scrolled down to Iowa and there it was, he said. I was definitely really surprised and really grateful that the hours and the hard work were getting us somewhere and people were speaking positively about us. Brian's journey to restaurant ownership um, has been a bit unconventional. Born and raised in Waterloo, uh, he graduated from Northern uh, University. He studied uh, also, he, went, he studied at Hawkeye Community College and Warburg College in Waverly. 
and spent some time in the culinary arts program at Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids, and he worked at John Deere for seven years. While off work recuperating from, a sur from surgery, Brian had a dream about Big Head Burger. The logo, the name, parts of the menu, all of it. I wheeled out to the living room and wrote everything down, he said. That set everything in motion. Two years later, he purchased a food truck. Two years after that, in 2021, he opened a Big Head Burger at 324 West 4th Street. Brian comes by his business acumen naturally. My grandfather, Colin Crawford, owned a little store and laundromat with a restaurant on Logan Avenue for 35 or 40 years. And he would put me up front and have me interact with the customers. Brian's mother, Nina, and his aunt, Darlene, both work at the restaurant with him. We have a very diverse customer base, he said. We get students and elderly people, my grandfather's friends, city workers like the police off, like police officers and firefighters. The mayor even stops in. I'm just so grateful uh, they decided to use their hard-earned money and come here. It's also important to Bryant to build strong relationships with the community. We donate food to the Jesse Cosby Center and House of Hope um, every week, he said. Bryant uh, recently approached Tri-Pi Bakery at 522 Mulberry Street to partner on a fundraising project for the organization. According to its website, the business is empowering a diverse group of teen girls in life and leadership skills through meaningful work. I reached out to them to create a special shake because I have a lot of admiration for what they are doing. I wanted to try to be inventive. So we put our thinking heads on to try to figure out the flavors and what would pair well. They came up with a combination of praline, a praline pie with salted caramel ice cream, a spin on the cake shakes featured on his regular menu. There is pie in the shake and a piece of pie on top, Brian said. It is not overly sweet. It has a balance to it. The shake has been a huge hit, Brian said, and 10% of the proceeds go to TriPie. The promotion will run through the end of December. Brian was also recently interviewed as part of the Grout uh, Museum, District's Black Stories Collective, exhibiting featuring black businesses in the Cedar Valley area. I really appreciate that they thought of me, but there are so many strong and entrepreneurial figures on the east side of Waterloo, like my grandfather, who really paved the way. People who look like me. Well, good for you. That's terrific. Uh, let's see. What do we have here? Well, I'll look at uh, one quick um, news brief here. Uh, in Cedar Falls, the South Riverside Trail will be closed for about six months, beginning on Tuesday from the Main Street Bridge to East 4th Street to allow for construction to continue on the recreational improvements of the Cedar River. Uh, trail users will be detoured onto the sidewalk by way of East 4th Street and Main Street as Peterson contractors and workers begin building the three in-river structures on the downsi downtown side 
of the river. City officials remind people to stay away from the closed sections of the trail and riverbank where heavy equipment will be moving back and forth. Anyone with questions can call the engineering division at 319-268-5161. Okay, let's turn the page. And what have we got here? Oh, my goodness. We have all of the Northeast Iowa area escapades, all the things that are going to be going on here. And we've got a bunch. Let's take a look. Saturday, the 30th 30th of December, Raldo Schneider will be on stage, veteran Cedar Falls country folk musician Raldo Schneider. And the boys will be on stage uh, at Octopus College Hill. On Saturday, beginning at 7 p.m., and Schneider has recorded at least nine albums in his lengthy career and performed throughout Iowa. And uh, Octopus is located at 2205 College Street in Cedar Falls. It doesn't mention anything about any uh, cost, so I'm assuming it's free. Um, Okay. Saturday, December 30th, go uh, Celtic with a rogue wave. Traditional Celtic and folk band A Rogue Wave will perform on Saturday at 8 p.m. and at Jameson's Public House at 410 East 4th Street in Waterloo. The Williamsburg bass band is known for having a nautical bent. Sunday, the 31st of December, Bob Dorr brings the blues. Bob Dorr's Happy Blue Year, a New Year's celebration, will feature two stages and who's who of Iowa blue musicians. Doors open at 7 p.m. at the Waterloo Center for the Arts, 225 Commercial Street, with music beginning at 7.30 p.m. Performers include Deje Blue, The Blue Two, Door, and guitarist Jeff Peterson and Friends, Sleepy Bones, Allison, Phil and Travis, The Nitpickers, a new Americans band, American band, along with Brian Sink and Cindy Grill, Kirk, Patrick, who is lead singer for the Hot Tamale and the Red Hots from Des Moines. Snacks will be provided by Friends of the Arts Center Beverages, and food from Hungry Charlie's will be available to purchase. Dorr and his wife, Carolyn, will celebrate their 14th wedding anniversary with a midnight champagne toast and wedding cake for revelers. Tickets are $30 in advance, $40 at the door. Funds raised will benefit Friends of the Art Center. And then on the uh, 31st of December, Joel Wagner joins Symphony. Waterloo native and Broadway star Joel Wagner will join the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra for a New Year's Eve celebration on Sunday. The performance with full orchestra is at 8 p.m. on the Catherine Cassidy Gallagher Great Hall stage at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center in at 8 8201 Dakota Drive in Cedar Falls. Wagner, Wagner rather, has appeared on Broadway in School of Rock and Be More, uh, Be More Chill in off-Broadway shows and a one-man show and in the original cast for Aaron's and Flattery musical Knoxville. He also appeared on the third season of Murderers in the Building, a comedy mystery TV uh, series with Steve Martin and Martin Short and Meryl Streep. And I was told by a friend that that program um, that they just mentioned here uh, is supposed to be very, very funny and very good. Um, So maybe you get a chance and you can check that out. 
Uh, let's take a look here now for um, the cost. Okay, um, tickets are at $41 to $66 for adults, $7 for youth, available online. And I'm going to spell this for you, W-E-F-S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-Y.org forward slash events by visiting the uh, Gallagher Blue Dorn Unitex box office and by calling the Unitex box office at 319-273-4849 or you can go uh, and, uh, or you can contact the, um, their office at 319-273-3373. And then let's see, what else do we have? Uh, Sunday, the 31st of December, more NYE music planned. Salt Fox, Jim Swim, and Everyday Astronaut will perform a musical New Year's Eve celebration at Octopus College Hill at 2205 College Street in Cedar Falls. Sunday's festivities begin at 8 p.m. Tickets are $15 in advance and $20 at the door. A New Year's Eve bash featuring Nevertheless is planned Sunday from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. at Screaming Eagle American Bar and Grill at 226 E 4th Street, Waterloo. Nevertheless is one of Iowa's favorite party bands. All right, and that does it for all of the events coming up here. Um, and at about this time, um, I read the obituary column. Um, and uh, we'll do that, and then we'll continue with the paper. I also would like to remind you that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. We are reading the E-Edition of The Courier, and I am your narrator, Peter Welch. Donna Wetzel of Marion, age 94, passed on the 16th of uh, November, at the Old Orv Hospice House in Hiawatha, Iowa. And let's take a look and see. Um, I'm just taking a look to see if there are any funeral services. Here we go. A celebration of Donna's life will be held on what would have been her 95th birthday weekend on May 18th, 2024, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Brandon Community Center at 802 Main Street in Brandon, Iowa. All family and friends are invited. Margaret Brink Meyer, age 96, um, has passed. And let's see what we have for visitation. Visitation on Saturday, the 6th of January, from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at Dysart United Methodist Church at 602 Til Tilford Street, Dysart in Iowa. And the funeral service will uh, be on the 6th of January at 10.30 a.m. at Dysart United Methodist Church, and burial will be at the Dysart Cemetery. Arrangements, uh, Overton Funeral Home at 707 Clark Street. Uh, Dysart uh, is handling uh, the, uh, the arrangements, and they can be contacted at 319-476-7355. Wilma Dietrich has passed at the age of 96 at the Shell Rock Health Care Center. And let me see, what do we have for, uh, here we go. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, December 29th, 2023, at New 
Hartford Community Church with burial following Oak Hill Community. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, the 28th of December at the church. And in lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to, city, uh, to Cedar Valley Hospice. Okay, what else do we have? Tamara Jones has passed at the age of 61. And let's see if we've got some. Yes, here we go. A memorial gathering will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, uh, December 28th at Richardson Funeral Service in Cedar Falls. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences at www.richardsonfuneralvice.com. Um, all right, what else do we have here? Kenneth Fleshmer, Fleshner. Uh, uh, has passed at the age of 73, um, and he, he was at the Crossing Rivers Health uh, Clinic. Um, and I'm just looking here for any services or anything for him. Here we go. A celebration of Ken's life will be held at a later date. The Garrity Funeral Home of Prairie de Chia is assisting the family. And Fern Guild of Waterloo uh, passed at the age of 98. Good for her. Um, and she was living at the Bigford uh, Cottage Assisted Living in Cedar Falls. And a uh, private family burial will be held at Garden of Memory Cemetery in Waterloo. A memorial gathering will take place at a later date. Memorials may be directed to the family. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Uh, lock at Tower Park at 4140 Kimball Avenue. Waterloo is assisting the family, and they can be reached at 319-233-3146. Okay, I think we've got one more here. Dolores Maystige has passed at the age of 92. Uh, and she was staying at the Martin Suites in Cedar Falls. And let's see, we've got funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on December 29th with visitation from 9 to 11 a.m. at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Redland, Iowa. Burial will follow at St. Paul's Cemetery. Uh, Redland Memorials may be directed to St. Paul's Church or Community Lutheran School in Redland. And the Kaiser Course and Funeral Home in Redland is assisting the family, and you can reach them at 319-279-3551. All right, let's move on here and see what's going on uh, in the Cedar Valley area of the paper. Uh, we're continuing in that area of Iowa. In Waterloo, approximately 200 seniors are involved in the Northeast Iowa Area Agency on Aging Home. Delivering meal programs uh, will see a provider change in the new year. Janet Bowles, Nutrition Service Director, said that they will switch to mom's meals. Some seniors will go from a volunteer to a driver delivering a warm meal to their homes five days per week to a bulk delivery every two weeks by the provider of microwavable prepared meals. Mom's Meals is a private company based in Ankeny with expertise in providing nourishing meals for clients with different health and wellness goals. The agency already has seniors receiving meals from the company. 
That transition begins Monday for a program some refer to as Meals on Wheels. Impacted seniors were informed of the change in provider according to Bowles. Uh, the agency says it's better for the future of this program, currently serving 450 to 500 seniors uh, in a number of towns in um, Alamanke, Blackhawk, Brenner, Buchanan, Butler, Chickasaw, Clayton, Delaware, Dubuque, Fayette, Fayette rather, Grundy, Hardin, Howard, Jackson, Marshall, um, Tama, uh, Tama, and Winnesheek. So all those counties, fewer meals are being served than in previous years. And the agency, agency has made it a priority to address um, its long wait list and provide more seniors with meals amidst challenges uh, partially associated with funding and meal costs. All right, now we are in the section of the paper. This is the opinion page, and this is uh, also called Another View. Um, now, let's see what we have here um, on this page. All right, um, this uh, first uh, Another View article is from the Bloomberg News, and the headline says, Don't give in to the gloom over Ukraine. West must adapt its response to provide more sustainable support over long term. All right, let's see what they have to say here. Nearly two years ago, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine unified European nations, reinvigorated the transatlantic alliance, and forged a spirit of rare bipartisanship in Washington. Now that resolve is fraying. President Joe Biden's administration and the European Union are struggling to deliver aid for Ukraine's military and budget, with even some of the country's staunchest supporters expressing doubts about its battlefield prospects and calling for negotiations to end the war. This frustration is perhaps understandable, but it's misguided. It ignores the enormous sacrifices that Ukraine's people have made to defend their freedom and push back against Russian aggression and underestimates the ability of Ukraine's military to regain the advantage if given sufficient weaponry. Abandoning the war effort now would wreck the West's credibility and ultimately endanger the, demo the democracies supporting Ukraine's defense as much as Ukraine itself. It's true that Ukraine's forces failed to advance this year as much uh, as leaders inside and outside the country had hoped for. Russia's defensive capabilities and willingness to absorb huge casualties have proved formidable. And while there is much finger-pointing, between Ukraine and the West about tactics and decision-making, the supply of weaponry was too little and too late to match the, ambitious, the ambitions excuse me, of the counter-offensive. Acknowledging these shortcomings is very different from defeatism. The answer isn't to do less. Putin shows no interest in negotiations or any history of abiding by agreements he's made. He has every reason to wait for the U.S. and European resolve to collapse. Uh, 
so he can complete his objective of, of subjugating Ukraine. And in this war of attrition, the West must adapt in response to providing more sustainable support over the long term. What should that entail? In the coming months, providing additional ammunition, long-range missiles, air defense systems, drones, and fighter aircraft will remain essential. Without the continued flow of Western arms, Ukraine will be unable to hold onto the territory it controls, let alone seize more. At the same time, the U.S. and Europe should ramp up Ukraine's own ability to produce weapons by providing incentives for joint ventures with Ukrainian defense companies to build drone factories, anti-mining equipment, and other defense industry uh, capacities. Ukraine also needs renewed budgetary support, which should be tied to continued demands on Ukraine's government for transparency and reform. It's impossible to predict when and how the war will end, but defeat would carry steep strategic costs, damage global food and energy security, and embolden Putin to go further. However, daunting, the challenges faced by Ukraine and its partners in the year ahead, failure isn't an option. Good article. Nice. Well, good, good article. Right on. All right, let's take a look now at um, a, another op-ed opinion uh, part of the uh, newspaper. Uh, with 68 journalists killed, who will cover Gaza war? In 2009, I covered the Gaza war known as Operation Cast Lead. International journalists, including myself, assembled in tents at El Arish Crossing on the Egyptian-Palestinian border hoping to directly cover the news in the Gaza Strip. This was before social media empowered uh, Gazans to pro uh, broadcast live from their phones to ours. Yet we can't equate professional journalism and social media. Journalists cover the news, but today journalists are the news. In this current conflict, journalists have been killed in Gaza Lebanon, and Israel. The Committee to Protect Journalists reported at least 68 journalists and media workers have died in this war since October 7th, the deadliest period for journalists since the organization started compiling data three decades ago. This is not the whole story. According to hum, uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, Journalists are actively being targeted. The fate of journalists in Gaza is especially poignant because they provide a window into a world that has been cut off from international press and independent reporting, with the exceptions of one CNN journalist. Their lives matter. Journalists write the first draft of history. The Geneva Convention, a fundamental part of international humanitarianism law, requires protection of civilians and journalists during armed conflict. But in Gaza, it's almost as though journalists are being treated as combatants. Their deaths have become mere numbers.
counted among the death toll of more than 20,000. One might cynically conclude that the deaths of nearly six dozen journalists is par to the course in a war that is marked by indiscriminate bombing. But these journalists were informing the world, providing understanding and footage of Israel's relentless assault that numbers and statistics alone cannot capture. Faced with this terrible number of journalists' deaths, five U.S. senators wrote a letter December 15th to President Joe Biden asking for greater protection for journalists in the Gaza area and for foreign journalists to be allowed in. They also called on Egypt and Israel to lift restrictions on reporting from Gaza. When I first attempted to enter Gaza with my tape recorder and notebook in 2009, the Egyptian authorities blocked me and other journalists from doing so without the written consent of our embassies. This was quite unusual. I already had a letter signed by my boss uh, at El Masa newspaper and saying that my assignment required me to enter Gaza. But I had to drive eight hours across the Sinai Desert to the Moroccan embassy in Cairo, where I showed officials that letter to get the additional paperwork I needed for the Egyptian authorities. I was surprised by a strange request from the Moroccan consular official. You must sign a complete waiver to absolve the Kingdom of Morocco of responsibility if you are subjected to harm or killed. I signed the document without a second thought, and it wasn't until much later that I noted how strange it was for my country to make me sign a waiver of liability should I die in a foreign land. Now the killing of journalists in Gaza is being normalized, with no one taking responsibility. Journalists are also suffering in other ways. Wal Dandoth and Al Jaraza correspondents received the news of the killing of his wife, children, and several members of his family, as he was live on air describing the Israeli advance on Gaza. Viewers watched his heartbreak in real time. Recently, Dado was badly wounded, and yet he continued to report with bandages on his arms. Last year, the world was stunned by the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Ake as she reported from the West Bank town of Jenin. 2021 video, she recounted, In the difficult moments, I overcame my fear because I chose journalism in order to be close to the people. It might not be easy for me to change the reality, but at least I was able to convey the people's message and voice to the world. In May, a year after her death, the Israel Defense Forces apologized for her killing after uh, conceding a high possibility that she was shot by an Israeli, Israeli soldier. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said, We want journalists to feel safe in Israel, especially in wartime. How empty these words feel now. Today, journalists are dying in this war at a staggering rate with zero accountability. If this pace continues, who will be left to accur accurately report from this conflict? And uh, I forgot to mention that this was written by Yosef Jajeli, 
uh, who is a journalist and writer and documentarian. He wrote this for the L.A. Times. Powerful stuff. All right, let's see. What else do we have here in the paper? Let's keep uh, rolling along. We still have a few minutes here. Uh, let's take a look at the weather forecast. Today, a little afternoon snow. Wind out of uh, will be 10 to 20 miles per hour, and there'll be a high of 35. And then again tonight, a little snow early, a low of 27 degrees. On Friday, partly sunny, a high of 44, a little warmer, and a low of 26. And then Saturday, it will be mostly sunny, a high of 40, a low of 24. And then Sunday, it gets chilly again. Uh, snow uh, flurries might be in the works there, a high of 31, a low of 21. And uh, outlook for Monday, it will be a high of 36 and a low of 20 degrees. In the national forecast, a steady rain, heavy at times, will track across much of the Florida Peninsula today as a storm pushes through the state. Showers of rain and snow will occur in the Midwest with steadier rain for the Northeast. Much of the West will be dry outside of a bit of rain and mountain snow from Northern California to Western Washington. Yes, folks, we did get some rain, uh, but oh... It's just a tip of the iceberg of what we still need. It's been so, so long since we've had this kind of a drought. Going into our four years now, I believe, someone told me. All right, let's keep moving here. Let's go to um, uh, 360, uh, the 360 degrees section of the paper. And let's see what's going on there today. Um, We have a bunch of stuff here. I can't, unfortunately, I can't read it all. Um, let's see. Let's take a look here. It says shedding stockpiles. All right. States are trashing troves of expiring pandemic gear. And they're showing boxes of personal protective equipment maintained by the, by the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services are, are shown in this picture stacked in a warehouse in Jefferson City. Um, When the coronavirus pandemic took hold in an unprepared U.S., uh, many states like Ohio scrambled for masks, other protective gear. Suppliers were so limited in 2020 that the state bought millions of medical gowns from a marketing and printing company and spent about $20 million to try to get personal protective equipment made in the state. Three years later, as the grips of the pandemics have loosened, Ohio and other states are now trying to deal with an excess of protective protective gear, ditching their supplies in droves. With expiration dates uh, passing and few requests to tap into the stockpile, Ohio auctioned off 393,000 gowns for just $2,451 and ended up throwing away another, get this, $7.2 million, along with expired masks, gloves, and other materials. The now expiring supplies have cost $29 million in federal money. Oh, what a shame, huh? All right, let's see what else we've got here in the paper. Uh, we still have... Um, a couple minutes left here. So let's see what else is going on here. 
as I turn the page. Poll, many in GOP, leery of vote counting. In Washington, with the GOP presidential primaries just about to start, many Republicans aren't certain that votes will be counted correctly in their contest as pessimism spreads about the future of both the Democratic and Republican parties. According to a new poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, about one-third of the Republicans say they have a great deal or quite a bit of confidence that votes in the Republican primary elections and caucuses will be counted correctly. About 3 in 10 Republicans report a moderate amount of confidence, and 32% say that they have only a little or none at all. In contrast, 72% of the Democrats have high confidence in their party and that they will count the votes accurately in the primary contests. Democrats are also slightly more likely than Republicans to have a high level of confidence in the Republican Party's vote count being accurate. Republicans continue to be broadly doubtful about votes being counted accurately in the early contests or beyond them. And one quarter of the Republicans say that they have at least quite a bit of confidence that the votes in the 2024 presidential election will be counted accurately, significantly lower than the Democrats. Slightly fewer than half of the U.S. adults overall, 46 percent, believe the same which is in line with an AP-NORC poll conducted in June. The skepticism among Republicans comes after years of um, former President Donald Trump falsely blaming his 2020 loss on election fraud. And federal and state election officials said uh, that Trump's own attorney general have also said that there's no credible, ev credible evidence that the election was tainted. The former president's allegations of fraud were also roundly rejected by the courts, including by judges Trump appointed. Nothing will be fair because the last election was rigged, said Julian Dugan, age 32, of Chicago, a Trump voter, referring to 2020. I don't trust any of them at this point. The AP-NORC poll found a widespread lack of trust in both major political parties among U.S. adults uh, overall. Well, <laughs> anyway, you know what? We are out of time here, so I want to thank you for listening to me, Peter Welch. You've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information information services network for the blind and the disabled we have been reading the thursday edition of the courier take care everybody and thanks for listening bye bye
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.